You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. But the Catholic Church uh, wanted to keep its head above some of this conflict. So they would tell the Protestants, uh, yeah, you can be buried in our cemetery. Uh, but their inside joke for years was, we just throw the heretics over the back wall. Uh, and that's basically what they did. There's a big open field behind the cemetery. Today it is, uh, they've walled it in, so it creates its own little section in there. But back then, the rear wall wasn't there. It was just a big open field. Uh, where they buried the process, and they really would call it the heretic section, and I sort of joke about that. Hello, and welcome to Drinks with God, a podcast about alternative theological experiences, death, and life. All of the following content is based on each interviewee's own personal experiences, and is meant to be educational, not confrontational. <laughs> I, I prefer not to put my face All right, brother, there. I'm ready when you are. All right, cool. Let me uh, see for a minute. So, welcome to another episode of Drinks with God. I am your host, and I have got today with me Luke, and we are going to be talking about uh, mostly cemetery upkeep, but I am really interested in especially historical cemeteries, as anybody who listens to this show knows. I'm not just a fan of uh, talking about... Um, fringe religions and the history of, but I'm also a big fan of, you know, death in all its various shapes and forms. And there's a lot about the history of cemeteries that I don't think people really talk about or think about. And Luke, I met you when I was actually in New Orleans with um, a bunch of friends. They'll say hi, by the way. They were really excited to hear that I was going to be chatting with you. They thought you were a fantastic tour guide, and I agree, which is why I wanted to try and bring you onto the show and see uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing some of your wisdom here. First of all, I always try to start with the question is, um, how did you get into this? What is, where does is, where is your interest lie um, in, all, in all this, um, the history of cemeteries? Or is it just the history of New Orleans, and this was a particular part of it you like? Uh, well, I, I started my career as a teacher. Um, my original degrees are actually in music and theater. And I always joke if I wanted a third useless degree, it would have been history. Um, I've always loved history my whole life. But uh, I was a music teacher in the public schools, and uh, speaking of cemeteries, I wanted to kill myself every day. Um, <laughs> teaching is, uh, there's no one I respect more than, than a teacher who's, who's really great at it and really passionate love. It is a hard, hard, and underappreciated and underpaid job. So um, I just did one quite cut out for it. I was looking for a career change. I had done uh, a ghost tour when I was um, probably 18 uh, here in New Orleans, uh, did a ghost tour, and even at that time as like a theater kid, I was kind of like, well, that might be a fun way to make a living, right? So yeah. uh, when I was looking for the career change, I, I started looking into being a tour guide for ghost tours and cemetery tours. I've loved cemeteries since I used to, I went on day in junior high with girls where we would go to cemeteries. We were spooky kids. Um, but, uh, so I really got the gig originally. I thought it would kind of just be a weekend night gig to get me to whatever my next career was. And I was very happily uh, surprised that I was able to turn this into a full-time sort of uh, career job that I'm looking forward to doing until I physically cannot do it anymore. So, um, 
yeah, that's kind of my background there, I guess. Very cool. And um, I know you do a couple different kinds. Do you, do you have a specific one where you really love doing it, or one where you really feel like you've got the most knowledge about? Um, I enjoy all of our tours. I'm not just saying that. We do all kinds of different history stuff and stuff. Um, they all have their charms. Uh, you know, uh, once you've been doing it for coming up on, uh, I've been doing it over seven years now. Um, it's, it's as much about the groups as anything. You love those people, like you and your friends, you know, you flattered me, y'all enjoyed me as a tour guide. I enjoyed you as, as tour guests, because, you, you know, you're into it, you're interested, you ask good questions, um, and, uh, that, that's a lot of what makes it fun. The history, I love the history, um, so I wouldn't say there's any one tour I like doing more than any of the others. I love the cemeteries, I love being there, um. But, but I enjoy doing all of them. Um, ghost tours are what I started, and that's what, what all pretty much all tour guys of New Orleans start in, uh, is doing the nighttime ghost tours. And I still love those, too. I mean, I've always loved ghost stories on folklore. Um, someone said to me the other day, you know, folklore is not a pejorative term, because, you know, folklore is truth in a lot of ways as well. Oral traditions are truth. Um, and that, that idea kind of fascinates me, the idea of storytelling as an art and things like that. So, yeah. Very cool. So um, I know that I'm definitely going to try and pick your brain a little bit about the mythology behind um, ghosts and storytelling of, in ghost tours later, but I do want to try and get to the nitty-gritty about uh, cemeteries just because I thought it was fascinating. So there's a whole lot about uh, the New Orleans cemeteries that's different from any other city, and I think a lot of it does have to do not just with the culture of the fact that New Orleans has a very French background – um, in not just the fact that it was, uh, that it is a, not just in like the cuisine and the people and all that, but it was founded by the French, obviously. So that, and that of course brings the whole Catholic, like, you know, Catholic background to it and how they treated the Protestants when they buried them. And then there's also, there's going to be a clash of that with how the cemeteries are set up as you were showing us, of course, on the tour. But then it's also, you've got the topography to deal with and the fact that you're right there on the swamp and you've got the river right there. So there's a whole lot to deal with. Um, what, what do you, well, in, in your own words, what do you think specifically is going to identify the upkeep of a cemetery that's going to have to deal with all those sorts of things, especially in a historical context? Uh, well, water. <laughs> you know, everything in New Orleans, everything in New Orleans is about water. Um, the reason the city is where it is is because of water. It's because of the Mississippi River uh, and the bend in the Mississippi River that uh, deposits silt and sediment right on the side of what, what's called the French Quarter neighborhood today, which is the uh, original city, more or less, uh, is the French Quarter. And so that's why the founder of the city chose that spot, because it was higher land. Uh, than the land around it, and it would not flood uh, in the same way. Um, so, so I guess uh, if, if I understand what you're asking, you know, most of what we you asked about cemetery upkeep, um, it's all about trying to keep stone, <laughs> you know, uh, structurally sound uh, in a swamp, in a hot, humid swamp that. It rains every day and it floods and, and all that stuff. So it all kind of surrounds that um, is the primary challenge. Um, but not exactly the water table, which we talked about, which I assume you're going to ask me about as well. But Yeah, yeah actually, yeah, um, definitely 
let's let's talk about that because a lot of people just assume that it's it's all just a rising water table that you have to deal with. And I was on Long Island for years, so I I know what a rising water table can do, but um, that's not necessarily the case, is it? Yeah, no. Um, so our above ground cemeteries do not start uh, as a direct reaction to a shallow water table. We do have a very shallow water table. Uh, most of the city, it's about four to six feet down. Uh, in the French Quarter, it's a little deeper than that, because, again, the French Quarter is high ground. Um, but that's not why we build an above-ground cemetery. So our first, uh, we'll call it one-and-a-half cemeteries, uh, were not above-ground cemeteries. The first pseudo-cemetery uh, was simply the levee of the Mississippi River. It's never really consecrated or... Um, organized as a cemetery, but the city's founded in 1718. Um, it's a swamp, and humans hate swamps, so they can't get anyone to move here. Uh, so they populate the colony with Paris' criminals, uh, and the, the murders, the rapists, the cutthroats, the thieves, uh, come here, and these guys live hard, and they, they, they do what's necessary, and so they just start putting people into the levee uh, of the Mississippi River. Um, for about three or four years, which is kind of where they're sticking people, but they start to have a lot of trouble with seepage, which is flooding through that levee, and as I, uh, I'm not going to give away all the tour jokes today, but I say that water is basically like people tea, <laughs> right? And so that's how you get cholera and dysentery and stuff. You have levee breakages, and you have bodies floating uh, around the city, so uh, that wasn't really working, and it wasn't planned to be the long-term solution, but the first cemetery they built was called the St. Peter Cemetery, uh, it was here in the French Quarter. I am actually sitting on top of it uh, right now at uh, the Voodoo Lounge where our tours meet. Um, French Quarter fans tours meet uh, is this whole sort of block uh, now exists on top of what used to be the first cemetery of New Orleans. Uh, St. Peter Cemetery. St. Peter Street is right over there. And it was your typical below-ground cemetery. And there was a shallow water table, and what they would do is they would drill holes in the coffins, they would slam it down into the six-foot pit, and they would get in that pit and jump on the coffin and sort of sink it down into that fucking mud uh, and hope that it would stay down there. And that's what they did until 1788-89, when there's just no room left uh, in St. Peter's Cemetery. And so they know they're going to build another cemetery, which was St. Louis Cemetery, which is the cemetery you visited. So that's actually the second cemetery built in New Orleans. It is the oldest continually operating cemetery in the United States today. Uh, it opened its gates in 1789, as I mentioned, and we're still using it um, to bury people. It's not super busy. Church says there's about five to ten burials there a year uh, on average, which, which is about right from what I've seen as well, that every couple months or so. Um, and they make an above-ground cemetery, but not because of our water table, uh, simply because of the fact that above-ground cemeteries have become really popular in Paris, and we wanted to be cool like Paris. Uh, and there's finally enough money in New Orleans by the late 1700s to afford that more elaborate sort of style burial. So St. Louis is built as the first Parisian-style above-ground cemetery uh, in New Orleans. Actually, before uh, we get... Before we leave the 1700s and get into um, too close into the 1800s where things um, start kicking up a little bit, I did want to ask a couple of questions, which I actually don't know whether or not you've got um, any background in this. Um, as people may or may not know on the show, depending on how many episodes you guys have listened to, before I got into a comparative religion um, major, I actually was looking at Pirates as a Socioeconomic Power, 
which got me, of course, into cannibal, uh, cannibal medicine trade. So, in terms of putting bodies just into the levee um, for so long, how did did New Orleans have any issue with structural and like you know having structural issues and their levee because people were pirates would be coming up to get bodies for that um, mummy medicine tr- uh, trade, or did New Orleans not have an issue with that? Uh, I don't know anything specifically about that. Uh, the levy, the, them being buried in the levees really was a very short period, just a couple of years, uh, three, maybe four years max. Okay. Um, and when I say they're burying bodies in the levy, uh, you know, one of the challenges of being a tour guide and a historian, as I'm sure you know, is I need to boil every, you know, 90-minute lecture in a college course about a historic subject down into a 10 minute conversation yeah. on a tour. Right. <laughs> um, so when I say bodies are being buried in the, uh, put in the life, it's very, very true, but we need to understand that's not an official thing. And it's not like, Oh, that's their primary mode of burying people. That's just one of the ways they were dealing with, okay. uh, the removal of their dead. You know, people are being dumped in the swamps. Uh, the plantations are often having, uh, little cemeteries, uh, on the plantations themselves, uh, as well. So there's all different kinds of ways in that first century people are being buried. The the levy example is just a, a really good way to talk about, sort of get people aware of the, the difference in the water tables and kind of how, you know, the above ground barrel over time ends up coming about. So that, and it's just fun and interesting to talk about. But yeah. I don't know anything about any sort of uh, uh, mummy. I'm not familiar even with that term. So That trade is a whole other very in-depth conversation, which I'm sure one day I will do a yeah. whole podcast about, possibly multiple. But it I, sounds I, fascinating. Yeah, when you, when you mentioned that they were um, shoring up the levee with that, I was like, how did that not get robbed continuously? <laughs> Um, but yeah, I guess if it, yeah, well, you know, we even challenge there, there's a funny story. I mean, I'm sure some stuff like that may have occurred and it's still, there's a, a, there's a funny thing that happened about, I don't know exactly how long ago, but there was a girl posted on Facebook. She lived near one of our cemeteries. Um, now I won't use names or specific places, but she started posting that she was a, a bone worker and that if anyone needed human remains for their, witchcraft to message her and she would send them to you and she was going into the cemeteries uh sneaking in after dark taking human remains and shipping them over state lines to people uh and the fbi showed up at her door we pretty much ran her out of new orleans everybody was very mad but you know people certainly do that Uh, it's no longer a a wide (laughs) a wide and profitable industry but it's not it's not stopped, but uh, but in the 1700s, it was very much in its prime, um, and uh, it, it was even still fashionable in, into the uh, early 1900s. But anyway, moving moving a little forward in history, so we we've got the the different kinds of above ground cemeteries that we're working with, and then the city is sold from France into the Amer- into the Americas. If it becomes an American city, then they're going to change up. Not just who the population of the town is, but who the population of the cemeteries are, which of course brings sure. um, religious conflict into things. Right. Yeah. So there's a deep divide. Yeah. Uh, after Louisiana Purchase, um, 
And, of course, we were actually a Spanish colony for uh, a minute before we became Americans. We'll, we'll go from Sp France to Spain, then back to France for a little bit, and then we're sold to to America. Uh, but, you know, the French and Spanish have certain cultural backgrounds and European backgrounds they share, uh, which they do not share in the same way with the Americans. Uh, the only experience the French uh, and European settlers of New Orleans really even have with Americans at this point are, are, for most people, are like the river workers. Yeah. Um, so they really have this idea of, of Americans were all these hard-living, sort of foul-mouthed, you know, hard-drinking, sort of uneducated, you know, northern carpetbaggers uh, coming down here and trying to tell these proud Frenchmen and women that, oh, by the way, you're Americans now. Um, and we don't really think this way anymore. But Louisiana Purchase is 1803. You know, America has only been an independent nation for, uh, you know, a few decades, a couple decades. And the French settlers here are very, very loyal to the European nobility, the Bourbon family, right? Bourbon Street's not named after the liquor, right? It's named after the, the uh, Bourbon family, the royal family of France. Some people try and claim the liquor is named after the street, but I don't think that's true. Uh, <laughs> But, um, maybe it is, who knows. But, uh, uh, so Americans are also traitors to the nobility of Europe, right? We're warmongers, we're revolutionaries. Um, so these two cultures don't get along at all. And the Canal Street, um, which is uh, the big street that borders one side of the French Quarter today, was the boundary between what was called the American sector on, on the other side and the European districts. Uh, on this side, and uh, you didn't really cross Canal Street for, for uh, quite a while. They set up the middle of Canal Street as sort of a neutral ground where they would trade and do business and, and stuff like that. We call all of our medians in New Orleans State neutral grounds, sort of as an homage to that or, or as a callback to that history. Um, but they're basically two separate cities operating side by side uh, in a lot of ways. You had Jackson Square on this side, you had Lafayette Square on that side. You had St. Louis Cathedral on this side. You had St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, on that side. So everything's kind of doubling up. So in terms of the cemeteries, um, you know, St. Louis number one, cemetery we're talking about, was a Catholic cemetery. Um, but the Catholic Church uh, wanted to keep its head above some of this conflict. So they would tell the Protestants, uh, yeah, you can be buried in our cemetery. Uh, but their inside joke for years was, we just throw the heretics over the back wall. Uh, and that's basically what they did. There's a big open field behind the cemetery. Today it is, uh, they've walled it in, so it creates its own little section in there. But back then, the rear wall wasn't there. It was just a big open field. Uh, where they buried the process, and they really would call it the heretic section and, and sort of joke about that. So that was the first uh, sort of place, or one of the first places, I should say, that the Protestants uh, were being buried on regular. Now, most of those tombs have been moved and disinterred into Protestant cemeteries that would be built later on. And I know that they actually even had a different burial practice at the time so that the bodies yeah. were floating differently. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. The Americans start digging six-foot holes uh, to bury people in, and the French are like, you know, guys, that's going to that's gonna be a problem, <laughs> um, because it definitely is a challenge. I mean, like I said, we do have below-ground burial. We have below-ground cemeteries. Um, 
and, and St. Louis Cemetery is not above ground because of the water table. It's not a direct correlation like that, but that's not to say burying people six feet under isn't challenging. It is. Um, but the Americans say, you know, Washington, D.C. is a swamp. We, we know how to handle swamps. Americans don't love being told what to do. Uh, especially by the French. I don't know if anyone's noticed that in your audience. Uh, but uh, they dig these six-foot holes, and what they do uh, differently from the French is they will line the entire pit, the entire six-foot pit, with brick, very tightly mortared, fitted-together brick. Um, and then when the, and they do that in the dry season, we can do that easier. Uh, and our dry season's like, you know, a week in... Uh, maybe February, I don't know. Uh, I really don't have much of a dry season here, but they go out there when it's dry, they do that really tightly mortar brick, uh, they lower the coffin in there, and they put a big, heavy, what's called a capstone, uh, down on top of the tomb. It's a, sort of a big marble uh, slab that's going to cover that whole top of that that pit. Um, and it works pretty well. Bodies don't go floating around, they don't pop out of those tombs. Uh, but like I told you about, when it rained, the things still fill with water. They're not, like, airtight. Um, so the coffins would start to float, and they would begin to knock against the top of these capstones as the water came up. Uh, and so the French started telling their children, that's why you need to be a good Catholic, because uh, if you're not, you're going to be forever trying to break your way out of purgatory or out of hell. You know, and that's what that knocking sound is. They say when it rained, it would be a, a crazy cacophony. Yeah, uh, in some of these cemeteries. So, <laughs> yeah, when you were telling us that, all I can think about was, "Oh, damn! I really would love to see an 1800 zombie film of just like the, just focusing on that <laughs> yeah. feud in New Orleans between the Catholics and the Protestants. That'd be hysterical. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. So, um, so it's actually fantastic to see how clearly defined that um that clash um between everyone in that growing city was during those first couple mm-hmm. hundred years it was um um it, it literally set in stone uh that whole history uh, there were a couple, yeah. yeah and i don't i don't want you to like you know lay out all, all your cards um from from your tour on this on this show no, I no, think, it's fine. yeah but there were a couple things i thought were really fantastic that um I definitely wanted to talk to you a bit about, there is a couple things that, uh, when people talk about cemeteries that are kind of like, you know, sensationalist, I, I liked how you, you did in fact talk a bit about, I know that whenever somebody is, um, was building a cemetery prior to the 1800s, occasionally there were issues with fumes and buildup and quote unquote exploding, um, or collapsing, um, cemeteries, which is where some older cemeteries you get the the myths of like, oh, someone broke out of their coffin and they're prowling around, especially in, um, with like 1500s and 1400s cemeteries, you'll see a lot of mythos come from local legends from that. I didn't see a whole lot of collapsed, um, setups over in the cemetery, but you were talking a little bit about the upkeep of things crumbling and, and, um, and that sort of thing. What, were there any issues similar to that that people were dealing with in New Orleans? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what what you're uh, referring to there, uh, to some extent, is is what what's called confusing the dead, yeah. or confusing the spirit 
traditions. Um, and it was, you know, these beliefs that they, they really did have, uh, that, that these sort of supernatural dangers and creatures were real and, and people would get up out of tombs and come, come and get you and, and things like that. At one point, uh, the Pope, and I'd have to look up which Pope it was and, and the date to be exact, uh, but uh, one of the popes would come out and basically say, you know, all this stuff is real. Vampires are real. Um, and uh, the good Christian needs to defend themselves against these these sort of creatures. And it, it caused what in Europe was called the vampire panic, where people said, you know, the pope, the, the voice of God, have said this stuff is real. Like, uh, it's out to get us. So a lot of our burial traditions, I think, around the world, and certainly in New Orleans, I, I would not call myself, a cemetery expert, I would call myself a New Orleans, uh, you know, maybe cemetery and burial traditions expert, but, so I can't speak to the whole world, but certainly a lot of New Orleans practices and traditions are very steeped in these ideas of confusing the dead, so, you know, uh, one of the first thing comes to mind is we put bodies in these above ground tombs, and the tombs get so hot that the bodies, uh, basically, it's a slow uh, cremation process, but they generally, traditionally, would not open the tombs uh, for a year and a day. Uh, that was the traditional number. Now, we do know sometimes they were opened earlier than that uh, out of necessity or, or if a child had been buried because children burn up faster. Uh, but the tradition was this idea of a year and a day. And, and part of that was practical in that you wanted to leave the body in the tomb for a full New Orleans summer uh, to get through that, that sort of uh, cremation process. Uh, and you wait the extra day out of respect for the dead. You don't want to open it on the anniversary of, of the burial service and things like that. There's also superstition in that, and that that's how long it took, you know, to make sure that when you open the tomb, Grandma wasn't going to jump out and eat your face yeah. uh, and things like that. So they, they really did have these traditions. The, the jazz funerals that are so famous in New Orleans and our second-line parades, which originally come from funeral traditions, can uh, perhaps um, argumentatively even be traced back to old funeral traditions where you would uh, place the body in a coffin and put it in a wagon or a cart, and they did this all around the world, and you would parade that wagon or cart throughout the village and city streets or these winding, circuitous routes. You would sing, you would dance, some cultures even beat on the coffins um, as they do this because they thought that would confuse the, the dead body, and it wouldn't remember. See, they believed the first place a newly risen corpse was going to go was the place it remembers best, which was directly home. So they thought winding it through these streets would confuse it, confusing the dead, and it wouldn't be able to find its way back yep. to the house. And even George Romero in his his famous uh, Dead movies will reference this in Dawn of the Dead. They all go to the mall, right? And there's a, there's a point where one of the characters says, they go to where they know. And he's referencing these old traditions. Of course, he's making a... Uh, comment about American, you know, consumerism things that the, the most important place in their life is the mall. You know, but what people really believed is that they would go uh, directly home. So uh, you have these confusing the dead traditions. You'll see throughout New Orleans upside down keyholes yeah. on some of the buildings. And that was part of confusing the dead, too, because they also thought that iron was anathema to the undead. But they didn't really have a lot of scrap iron with the little iron keys. So they used to bury bodies with an iron key around its neck because they thought that would help prevent it, you know, rising up. But it's not a perfect science. So if it was very powerful, you know, your uh, mother-in-law, you have no doubt she's coming back. You turn your keyhole upside down in your house, 
because they thought that it couldn't really reason. It wouldn't be able to figure out how to turn the key upside down to get it in that keyhole. So that's part of confusing the dead, too. Um, so certainly we have those traditions. Our, our tunes would crumble. Um, you know, I, I think most people know about, you know, the bell on the outside of the tomb. Yep. And some of that's really legit. They weren't always so great at telling when people were dead. So sometimes people really would, you know, come to in these tombs and, and uh, you know, need a way to let people know that they were trapped in there and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, it, it definitely did. And um, I know that, that the whole secondary burial is actually a very common part of a whole host of traditions for a lot of traditions expect um especially um eastern middle eastern scandinavian um a couple different african traditions um actually many different scandinavian and um north northern european traditions where you'd have the initial burial of the person and then a certain period of time usually it was a year and a day sometimes other cultures had another magical number of years where there'd be a secondary burial where then they stopped being an individual person, and we're joining the ancestorhood, and you put them in, like, the ancestor group grave. And I think it's, like, really oh. cool and very interesting how you see other versions of that, um, especially in the Americas. Right, which is essentially what we do as well. After that year and a day, the remains are shifted into the cabo of the tomb, which is a communal, you know, a burial place, and your ashes join the ashes of mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, and whoever else is in there. Um, that's interesting, yeah. And actually, uh, a part of that I saw that uh, you were pointing out about the the dust in the graves, <laughs> um, in the graveyard, about how sweeping it out in the back, that wasn't, <clears throat> yeah, but how, with part of the just, like, everything, you know, rotting and falling apart process, how, you know, you not all of it was just going to be the bones that you picked up. Some of it's going to, you know, rot away. Where do you put it? You just right. sweep to the back of the tomb. Right. Exactly right. All right, um, so that's pretty much everything I, I definitely wanted to make sure that we covered with, with cemeteries. What's, your, like, your favorite thing that you that you love, like, talking to people about when it comes to just the history of, like, New Orleans uh, cemetery practices and something that you feel like is real you know, of your city? Oh, man. Um, it's hard to pick a favorite. I, I, I love military history, yeah. um, and there is a... Uh, a military tomb in there. Uh, I don't go by it. I'm not able to get to it every time. Not sure if I did on your tour yet or not. But there's a Veterans of the Battle of New Orleans cemetery in there. Or uh, not cemetery, excuse me, tomb in there. It's called a society tomb where a lot of them uh, were buried. So I enjoy talking about that, talking about the military history of the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, but I guess if I had to pick a favorite favorite, um, it's sort of... You know, Marie Laveau, the famous voodoo practitioner of New Orleans, uh, is buried in St. Louis Number 1. And uh, like I showed you, there's so many misconceptions, both about her and her life, um, and just voodoo as a whole. And so I love the opportunity to really address, like, voodoo is not this, you know, scary, dark uh, 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 religion of cursing your neighbor, voodoo dolls, you know, attacking people. It really is a religion of light and love. Um like, like what we think of as most, you know, religions. Um, and it's steeped in African history and African tradition, African culture. Uh, everything we love about New Orleans is what we love about West Africa. Because um, we had a direct slave route, slave route to West Africa. So enslaved people brought here our first-generation slaves. So they have their whole culture, their whole African history intact, right? They have their music intact, and out of that we're born uh, and fortunate to have jazz. They have their food traditions intact. You know, so everything we think of as Creole cooking, 
can really be traced back to African-style preparations using Native American ingredients. Um, and they have their religious traditions intact, and out of those traditions, the Catholic influence on those traditions, you will get uh, this modern religion of voodoo. And so I really enjoy talking about that stuff, um, even more than I enjoy talking about Marie Laveau's life, which is fascinating as well. And uh, we get into that on there, but just just really that sort of here's what voodoo really is, um, and and no doubt it made no bones, you know, that I am um, everything I take about voodoo I take from the mouth of uh, a voodoo priestess and practitioner who I spoke to. You know, voodoo is is very all the books often say different things. There's all these different sort of versions and things, and that's uh, in no small part because it was religion in hiding for 200 years, so they didn't have a church or a meeting place where they all went. They don't have a book. You know, every family sort of did things uh, in their own way, and and um, at the sort of lecture that I was at where we were all talking about this stuff, uh, the Buddha Priestess was discussing that in that history, and, and someone raised their hand and she said, well, if you all do it different, you know, who is right? And she kind of laughed, and she said, you know, we're all right, um, because it's all the traditions that have been passed down to us by our mama and our mama's mama and, 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 and these things. And so they don't view their religion in quite the same way, you know, sometimes to, to certain uh, uh, more, I guess, conservative or strict religions. There's a right way, you know, and a wrong way of doing things. Um, the church I grew up in, we would always joke that it's two songs and a prayer before the sermon. It's not three songs and a prayer. It's not two songs and two prayers. It's two songs and a prayer. You know, that's not the way it's done. Um, that's not how the, the voodoo practitioners uh, look at things. So, so that, that's probably my favorite thing to talk about in the cemetery. Yeah, I was actually very, very appreciative with um, this, how you were talking about the religion. I have ad nauseum spoken about voodoo, um, you know, Santeria and Sregheria on this show. So uh, I'm not going to rehash that again for my listeners, but I'm always a fan of someone who actually has that talk with people. But actually, speaking about local, tradi- speaking about local traditions and, um, and how it changes and influences over time and how everyone does it differently, um, I know that you guys also do a whole lot of ghost tours and speak yeah. and, you know, talk about, you know, local mythology and local legends and things that go bump in the night. Um, and, um, and how yeah. people will change and twist things. There's a whole lot of um, diff- different ways to tell the same story. A whole lot, like, there'll be, like, werewolf stories all over Europe that are different, and then you'll come over here, and then there's Wendigos, for example. So, sure. um, so I, I know there's, like, some things that are very specific to different parts of the United States, like there's Mothman... There's Bigfoot, there's, you know, um, Area 51. Is there anything that's specific to New Orleans, aside, or is it just, like, uh, the various ghost tours and, and urban legends? What an interesting question. Um, you know, that's so true. Uh, even we have our werewolf, the Lugaru, or the Rugaru, depending on which Cajun you're talking to, which is, is basically a Cajun werewolf, you know, out in the swamps. Um, so we have our own versions, kind of, of, of a lot of those uh, standard mythologies. Um, we have a story here uh, called Resurrection Mary, which we're 
pretty sure we stole from Chicago, which is sort of a, a USA-wide urban legend where, uh, you know, a taxi cab driver picks this girl up from the bar, and uh, she gives him her address, and he, he takes her home, but there's no house there, there's just a cemetery, and he turns around, and there's no one in his car except for a puddle of water. Uh, but in New Orleans, we switch that around and say he picks her up at the cemetery and takes her to a bar, uh, because in New Orleans, we're always going to the bar, not leaving uh, the bar, you know. So, so um, it's amazing. That's one of the most fascinating things about folklore is the way it, it uh, seeps through... Uh, into into uh, different cultures and different different cultures put their own spin on it. You know, we make that story part of our drinking culture, but we're pretty sure it originates at Resurrection Cemetery in Chicago. That's why she's called Resurrection Marion and things like that. I would say if New Orleans has one thing specifically uh, that we're known for today, it would be vampire legends. You know, uh, the word vampire you can trace it back through different places, but uh, seems to show up in France, sort of in that form. Vampire, it's a French legend. Uh, our vampire stories struck all, stretch all the way back to the 17, uh, early 1700s with, with a legend called the Casket Girls, uh, uh, which is supposedly are the original vampires who were sent here from Paris to sort of start wiping out the undesirables who founded the colony. More respectable people start showing up. Um, I won't tell you the whole story. You'll have to do do the ghost tour. You can look it up, but that's fascinating. Uh-huh. Uh, and then yeah. vampire culture was was so big here, especially in the '90s with Anne Rice. You know, she's uh, one of the most selling authors of all time. Interview with a vampire. You know, famous Brad Pitt. Tom Cruise did the movie in the '90s, but that book I'd have to look at when that book specifically was published. Uh, but she was huge in the '90s, um, and it's part of what brought me you know, into a love of New Orleans is is this vampire culture. And we have vampire legends um, every which way. And it's funny, you mentioned the Wendigo uh, referencing uh, werewolves, but I actually uh, mentioned Wendigos as being sort of a vampire-esque legend that every culture in the world has these sort of vampire-type legends. Um, And uh, this idea of, of something immortal feeding on the life of others, you know, in some way to survive. Yeah. Uh, so that's probably probably what New Orleans, specifically in the United States, is kind of uh, the vampire capital. Of course, our ghost stories we have we have all that good stuff too. And then we have our famous serial killer, the Axeman, um, which is a, a true story and a fascinating story, um, which I can run down a little bit if you want. But that's not exactly related to what you asked. Oh no, you can give uh, me the gist of that. Well, the Axeman. So it's a serial killer uh, who was. Uh, killing Italian grocers. Uh, this is very true. No, he was never caught, so no one's sure exactly why. He targeted these Italian grocers, and what he would do uh, is he would take the axe, the, the wood axe that every home would have had, you know, a little axe that they chopped wood with, so he would take the axe out of the wood pile, he would break in through the back door, and he would come in and, and axe people uh, to death. And uh, he was a big, famous serial killer uh, in the early 1900s, and everybody was aware of him and scared of him and terrified of him. Uh, I had someone on a tour tell me, you know, she remembers as a little kid, uh, you know, in the 70s, her grandma coming in and and saying, you know, if you don't behave right, the Axeman of New Orleans is going to break in the house and kill you. Uh, But but part of what really makes him famous is uh, one of our newspapers receives a letter quote-unquote, from the Axeman, 
that uh, it's, it's a wonderfully written letter full of, full of wonderful language, but it says things like, you know, I am a demon from hell here to, you know, terrorize the earth, uh, but I'm a lover of jazz. And uh, on this specific night, uh, I will pass over New Orleans, but any home playing jazz, you know, I will pass by and, and I will not, you know, uh, murder anyone in this house. And people freaked out. The night in question, all around the city, jazz parties, everyone's playing jazz. Uh, and what most people think today is the person who wrote the letter was uh, the guy who uh, wrote the song, The Axe Man of New Orleans. It's a j- an old jazz tune. <laughs> he was trying to make a song famous. Um, uh, certainly not written by the actual axe man, but he's never caught. Uh, he uh, disappears, the murders stop, and uh, never never caught, never found out who it was or, or really why he was doing what he was doing. So uh, that's certainly a, a very New Orleans-specific, you know, legend and truth. I mean, it, it all really happens. So. We talk about that on our true crime tour that we do. Cool. Yeah, no, you guys have a slew of them. Um, definitely going to be posting yeah. links in the show notes to, to right. just the basic webpage of what you guys have listed there, because you guys have yeah. a whole bunch of cool things. Appreciate it. Um, and we do private tours as well, so, you know, if your listeners are interested in certain specific things, or they want a little bit of each tour, uh, we can custom private tours for people as well. We've done literature tours, we've done, you name it, we can do it. So Cool. Actually, you know, jump on jump on that soapbox. Why don't you you can? Why you, I know that you've got a little, a little spiel, a little spiel about um absolutely what you guys do. Uh, and I appreciate appreciate the opportunity. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm the tour manager uh, for French Quarter Phantoms Tours uh, in New Orleans. My job uh, as a tour manager is to hire and train our tour guides and sort of um, monitor the tour content and. You know, final responsibility of research and, and all that stuff. That's that's my gig. Uh, we meet at the Voodoo Lounge. It's a bar in the French Quarter. Uh, we have our own room in the back, our own box office that kids can go into. Um, uh, we, we are a different business from the bar, but we certainly are friends with and partners with them. And they offer two-for-one hurricanes. Uh, for our tour guests, we do all kinds of tours all day long. Our ghost tours are at night, uh, but we do uh, Treme Tour, which is the oldest African-American neighborhood uh, in the United States. That's uh, a, a, a sort of a black history cultural tour uh, and just the history of the city as well. We do the cemetery tour, of course, we talked about of St. Louis Number 1. We do a garden district tour, one of the most beautiful neighborhoods in the United States, and we also go into a cemetery on that tour as well, it's called Lafayette Number One. It's the oldest Protestant cemetery. That's where a lot of movies were filmed uh, in Lafayette Number One. Uh, we do a Saints and Sinners tour, which is uh, our version of just a French Quarter history tour, but it's our raunchy French Quarter history. So it's a lot of fun. It's eighteen and up, and we talk about the drinking culture and sort of the horrific violence of New Orleans and uh, Storyville, our famous red light district, and things like that. We do a music history tour. We do the true crime tour that I mentioned. Um, and then for our ghost tours, we're voted top ten in the world by TripAdvisor. Uh, uh, and number one in the United States by USA Today. So I think we're pretty good at it. We're pretty proud of uh, of what we do. So uh, anyone who um, comes to visit us from here, let them know that uh, you want Luke's tour discount, and we'll give you uh, three bucks off the price of your tour. Nice. Thank you. Which makes it 17 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, still, hey. Um, and are there any personal yeah. projects that you're doing, or is, is you're pretty much just all, all tours all the time right now? Um. 
Uh, you know, as sort of the manager of the company, this takes up uh, most of my most of my uh, time. Um, I uh, just finished. We were working on uh, a sort of unique sort of food history experience that we don't uh, have up and running yet, but we're hoping to maybe do something with that soon. So I've been doing some research and, and background on some of that stuff. Oh, um, and I still do some music around town now and then and stuff as well. Very cool. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I remember you were you were talking to my boyfriend because he and another friend that I was with, like they both play all the instruments. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my, my degree, uh, like I said, back to the theater and vocal music, um, and I was like a soloist section leader at one of our big uh, uh, Episcopal cathedrals here for years and years and years. Uh, I've taken a, a few steps back from that, but you know the beautiful thing about about music and culture and all that never goes away, you know. So I'm sure that period of my life will come around again. Uh, Right now my main responsibility is uh, keeping this, keeping this place ship shape and running well. And, and I love it. Um, So, so this is, is, um, you know, they say when you love your work, you never really work. I don't agree with that. I think work is always work to some extent, but man, it's nice when you love it (laughs) as well. So, um, I feel very fortunate, um, you know, personally in my spare time, I like play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and really nerdy stuff like that, so oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, actually, and, and listeners, I will, don't forget, I just posted that uh, episode about D&D and comparing it to Dante's Inferno and the Lesser Key of Solomon, so sure, check sure. that out. Um, so, thank you very much for coming on the show today, and um it, and for you out there who would like to come onto the show, please, please, please uh, feel free to drop me a line at Drinking With God with an ING. Check out our T-shirts. They say things like "Ask me about my death anxiety" and "Pope Formosus did nothing wrong." And if you would like to come on the show, just drop me a line. Thank you for following us on Twitter, on Patreon, on Facebook, all that. And you all stay weird out there. Thank you.